Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Snack Podcast for Trainees. My name is Arun George, and I'm an assistant professor in anesthesiology at the University of Kansas. Our topic of discussion today is ventriculostomy management. And discussing this topic today with us is Dr. Jack Buckley. Dr. Buckley is an associate clinical professor of anesthesiology at the UCLA Medical Center. He's an associate division chief for neuroanesthesia at UCLA and serves on the OSCE exam committee for the American Board of Anesthesiology, in addition to being a board examiner. He's also the program director for the residency program at UCLA and a member of the Education Committee for SNAC. Welcome and thank you for being with us today, Dr. Jack Buckley. My first question for you is, what inspired the idea for this podcast today? Well, as you mentioned, I'm the residency program director at UCLA and I'm also a member of our quality improvement committee And over the years, we've seen various complications related to external ventriculostomy drains or EVDs. And since EVDs are very common in neuroanesthesia, my goal today is to kind of go through the basics of EVD management to minimize the risks of complications and really ensure that EVDs are used properly to optimize patient outcomes. Um, And I'll give you a quick example. A common error that we've seen is the surgeons will place an EVD in the operating room and it will request the anesthesia team to connect the EVD to a pressure transducer. And we've had numerous cases where the anesthesia team will connect the EVD to the most common pressure transducer that they use every day, which is the transducer for the arterial lines. And while this is the correct transducer, they don't realize that you, if you're gonna connect it to a ventriculostomy drain, it's very important that that transducer is not connected to a bag of saline, um, which is then ultimately connected to a pressure bag. Because if you have an arterial line, you want the pressure bag flushing small amounts of saline each hour to keep the arterial line patent. But as you can imagine, if you use that same connection to your ventriculostomy drain, the saline will be flushed into the ventricles of the brain and this could potentially be very dangerous to patients. So it's kind of very obvious when you think about it, but until someone actually brings it up and tells you about the issue, you could easily see yourself um, making that type of an error. So my goal today is to kind of just go through what I've seen as common mistakes by residents and others and use this to guide your uh, care and experience using the EVDs. Um, So my goal is to really focus on the management of EVDs during surgery, because I think that's most applicable to people in this audience. Um, but many of these principles are likely similar to care that would occur in the ICUs. Um, and then after listening to this podcast, if you want additional information, uh, SNAC actually created uh, guidelines that were published by Dr. Lell, so it's L-E-L-E, in 2017. And it was titled Perioperative Management of Adult Patients with Ventricular and Lumbar Drains. And this includes a much more comprehensive discussion on how to manage EVDs. Um, but as I mentioned, EVDs are very common. It's probably one of the most common procedures that happen in neurosurgical patients. And as you likely know, they're placed in the lateral ventricle of the patients. And their primary goal is to monitor ICP and drain cerebral spinal fluid. Um, The common indications for EVDs include obstructive hydrocephalus, subarachnoid hemorrhage, uh, intracerebral hemorrhage, brain relaxation for surgical procedures, or patients that already have VP shunts that have become infected who then need a temporary drain. EVDs have the ability to both monitor ICP and drain CSF, but it's very important to understand that they can't do them both at the same time. Um, Because if the EVD is open to drain and is actively draining CSF fluid, your monitor will give you an ICP value 
But it's important to understand that that value is not accurate because you're only going to get an accurate reading if you have a static column of fluid in the EVD drain, basically meaning uh, you don't want fluid flowing in or out. So our usual practice at UCLA is we monitor the ICP during surgery and we have it closed to drain. And what we do is if the ICP is elevated above a certain goal, say 20, the EVD will then ultimately be drained um, and will drain a specific amount of fluid somewhere around five or 10 cc's at a time. Um, but before you go ahead and drain fluid, I think it's very important to discuss it with the surgeons um, let them know what the ICP is and then discuss whether draining fluid at that time is indicated because it's important and you'll hear me keep saying this numerous times during this talk. We want to have frequent communications with our surgical colleagues because we may have a, a typical protocol like when X happens we do Y, but sometimes that changes based on the patient's clinical condition. So we always want to have a goal like this is what we're going to do, but then discuss it before we actually do any um, ultimate management. And the reason for that is you may have a goal ICP, but before you drain the fluid, you wanna to talk to the surgeons and see, first, if you let them know the ICP is elevated, that may ultimately influence their surgical management of the patient, but it may also, um, they may change the goal because if they see the brain and look at it, they may say, actually an ICP of 22 is okay at this moment and draining fluid would be uh, not helpful. Another thing I'd like to bring up is it's common for nurses to open the EVDs to drain at a specific pressure. So when you go see the patient in the ICU, the nurse will say the EVD is open to drain at 15. Um, and while that's safe in that type of environment, it's very important to remember that that only works if a patient's position relative to the ED, EVD is constant. And you know, I think it's important to realize that while we're transporting patients, moving the patient in the bed, potentially positioning for the surgery or doing the other procedures, you're frequently changing the patient's position relative to the EVD. And for that reason, I think it's important to keep the, um, in any of those situations where things are not stable, you wanna keep the EVG drain closed so that you don't inadvertently drain too much CSF fluid. Um, and the reason that's important is if you drain too much CSF fluid, the brain can sag in the skull and this can lead to an impedance of venous drainage. You know, I've seen cases where when this was severe enough, patients have actually had massive strokes due to decreased perfusion of the brain um, due to the venous obstruction. Uh, so that's why it's our practice to keep it closed in most situations and just monitor the ICP really to minimize that from happening. Yeah, uh, thank you very much for going through the uh, practical aspects of that. Uh, that's very useful for uh, all of us here. Um, now, Dr. Buckley, does everything you described above also apply to lumbar drains? In, in general, the answer is yes, but there's obviously a few exceptions. Um, at first, the indications for lumbar drains are a bit different, and the indications include acute symptomatic hydrocephalus from, say, a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Uh, you'll also frequently place lumbar drains for aortic repairs, and then if someone has an active CSF leak from cranial facial trauma, you might place a lumbar drain to just decrease the CSF volume and hopefully um, decrease that CSF leak. You know, one of the things I wanna bring up is in some institutions, including our own, it's common for the anesthesia team to actually place the lumbar drains. Um, I think the placement's pretty straightforward. It's very similar to doing an epidural. The kits are almost uh, very, you know, the needles are very similar looking, the catheters are similar looking. Um, and when you're placing it, it's obviously going to be the first time that you're intentionally trying to get a wet tap with your epidural. Um, but, you know, once you get the CSF flow, you'll thread the catheter. Um, but prior to placing the drain, I think it's important to understand what are the contraindications, because these can be very important. Uh, 
you know, obviously I think one of the most obvious ones is if there's an infection at your placement site, you don't want to place the drain. Um, the coagulopathy is similar to placing an epidural. And I would recommend reviewing the ASRA guidelines just to ensure that the patient doesn't have any contraindications to epidural or lumbar drain placement. And then the last one I think is really important to think about is you want to make sure the patient does not have any kind of non-communicating hydrocephalus or large intracranial masses, because if you place a lumbar drain in these patients, you risk draining the CSF in their uh, spinal cord and ultimately causing cerebral herniation, which could be a very high risk in some of these patients. Can you go into further detail about some of the complications from EVDs that uh, anesthesiologists should be aware of? I think the most common and one that we worry about the most is hemorrhagic complications. And the incidence can be as high as 40%, depending on how you define it. The good news is most of the time, the hemorrhagic complications that occur are not clinically significant, but there is a small subset of patients that it can actually be very devastating. But I do think it's important to also remember that the risk of hemorrhage occurs both during placement, but also removal of catheter. Uh, so if you have a patient that the EVD was removed early in the day um, and you're starting to see a clinical de uh, decline, that might be the cause. An infection is another common complication that we see with EVDs and the incidence can be as high as 28% in some studies. Um, this complication is less common for us to see during surgery because typically it's, it occurs in the non-surgical patients or in the post-operative period, but it's important to be aware. You do want to understand that some of the risk factors for EVD infections include frequent sampling of the CSF or even flushing of the catheter. So if you do anything really involving the system, you want to do, be absolutely certain that you're maintaining the sterility. Um, and that's why, you know, I, I really tell my residents, if they're ever going to access the um, collection systems, they really want the surgical team to help them, just because the neurosurgery residents are much more familiar with the collecting system. And we want, we just want to make sure it's done correctly, so we don't cause any kind of uh, cerebral spinal infection. Another thing that I've brought up already is related to overdrainage of the CSF, um, which can lead to brain sagging or an obstruction of the venous drainage. I think it's also important to be aware that if you overdrain the CSF, you can lead to cerebral tonsillar herniation. And overdrainage of CSF can actually cause subdural or epidural hematomas, and ultimately could even cause rebleeding of a ruptured cerebral aneurysm uh, due to decreasing the ICP in the brain. So this is probably one of the few factors related to EVDs that we actually have control over. You know, the hemorrhage, the infection really is likely not something that's going to involve us or something that we cause, but the drainage is something that we're directly involved in. And I think it's really important to be careful how you drain CSF. And really, I want to communicate with the surgeons anytime I'm going to drain additional CSF. And the last thing I wanted to bring up is there have been cases of inadvertent injections of medications in the EVD system. Uh, when this has occurred, um, some of these medications have actually led to devastating complications in patients, including death. So it's really important to remember where your EVD system is and kind of look at it differently uh, than your IVs. And most of the systems have actually been adjusted so that they look different from the IVs. Uh, it's kind of like the epidural. Your epidural tubing uh, looks very different than your IV tubing. Um, but even with these safeguards in place, yeah, I think it's very, you just want to keep your IV lines separate from your EVD so that you can't inadvertently inject anything. And taking the practical aspects a bit further, uh, can you give us some recommendations for intraoperative management for EVDs? Well, there's a few key points I'd like to highlight. 
first, I think it's important to monitor the drain on a regular basis. And if the color of the fluid changes, for example, maybe it becomes blood tinged or you even see frank blood, very important to discuss this with the surgeons immediately. You know, this could be a sign of an intraventricular hemorrhage related to the surgery, or maybe they're having a subarachnoid hemorrhage related to a rupture of a cerebral aneurysm. Um, so by telling them right away, they may actually adjust what they're doing intraoperatively. Um, another common thing that you know, I wanna highlight is how you zero and uh, position the, um, the drain itself. In general, we want our pressure transducer to be leveled with the external auditory meatus. And when you start to drain CSF, the general recommendation is to limit drainage to about 20 cc's an hour. Um, but as I've said numerous times in this talk already, you know, this should be discussed with the surgeons because potentially it may be more or less for a given patient. Uh, when I talk to my residents and they ask me, what are the ICP goals for a given patient? You know, the answer is always, it depends. And the reason for that is, if you have a patient with an unrepaired, previously ruptured cerebral aneurysm, your ICP goal is likely going to be higher, maybe around 20 centimeters of water. And once they get repaired, it may drop down to 10. And the reason for that is, when you decrease the ICP, you're decreasing the transmural pressure across the aneurysm. So if you have an unrepaired aneurysm and you decrease the ICP, you're increasing the risk of rupture. So I think instead of having a set number in your head, I think you wanna have that conversation with the surgical team, usually at the beginning of surgery, just to kind of define what are our ICP goals um, during the surgery and is it gonna change? Um, and one other point I just wanna be really clear about I might have said the ICP goal is 20 uh, for unrepaired aneurysms. I'm not proposing that we're going to intentionally try and raise the ICP if it's lower than that number. I'm just saying that, you know, if it's higher than that number, we may lower it, but we're not going to lower it more than that. Another point I want to raise is I think it's important to have a normal ICP waveform and understand what it should look like. Because if you have a waveform that's not present, you need to be concerned, is the catheter correctly positioned in the ventricle? Is it kinked? Um, maybe it's occluded. Maybe it has a blood clot inside. You know, if any of these things are happening, you want to diagnose it early because if the waveform is not present, your ICP measure may not be accurate. Um, and even more significant, if the patient's reliant on their EVD for CSF drainage due to obstructing hydrocephalus, and the catheter is not functioning properly, the patient's at risk of impending herniation, and there's going to be no indication on your ICP monitor uh, other than a lack of the waveform. So anytime there's a lack of a normal ICP waveform, this should be discussed uh, immediately with the neurosurgeons. When the waveform is dampened or absent, um, it is reasonable to temporarily lower your EVD drain and see if fluid will uh, drain out. Because sometimes if the catheter is just occluded with a little bit of a blood clot, by lowering the drain, uh, that little bit of increased flow will actually flush out your catheter. And if that doesn't resolve the issue, um, this may need to be taken to the next step, which would include actually flushing the catheter. So you're gonna flush the catheter from um, into the patient and actually flush fluid back into the brain. Um, at our institution, I have our, the neurosurgeons will do this. Um, and I think it's very important that whoever was to do something like that needs to understand the process and actually understand how to maintain sterility. Um, because flushing the catheter can actually cause a significant increase in ICP. So it needs to be done carefully in patients with poor cerebral compliance. And really it's just, it's not something you wanna do for the first time without someone that can assist you. I, I mentioned earlier that our practice at UCLA is to maintain the EVD clamped so that we can mon monitor the ICP accurately and then we'll drain specific volumes of CSF um, 
But even doing this should be discussed with the neurosurgeons because there are some patients who are not gonna tolerate clamping the uh, EVD for sustained periods of time due to decreased cerebral compliance. You know, these patients may need continuous drainage that requires, you know, a high level of vigilance because as we talked about earlier, as you're adjusting the patient's position, moving the bed around, um, you're, if you're not keeping the EVD train position properly, you can inadvertently over drain the CSF. So the patients that may need continuous drainage of their uh, EVD include patients with elevated ICPs, typically greater than 15 uh, centimeters water, or patients that had high CSF drainage prior to coming to the operating room. And uh, while on the topic of CSF drainage, uh, can you please go through the steps for draining CSF fluid? Sure. As I mentioned previously, we, we typically keep the EVD closed so that we can accurately monitor the ICP. Uh, once the CSF, I'm sorry, once the decision has been made to drain CSF, we'll then open the EVD and drain the specific volume of CSF that was decided uh, with you consulting with the surgeons. If the EVD is draining slowly, we may temporarily lower the EVD uh, lower than the external auditory meatus just to kind of decrease the pressure in the system. Um, and this can actually be very effective at improving the flow of CSF. And then once you've drained the correct volume of CSF, you'll then position the drain um, in its correct location. But I, I really wanna highlight, it's extremely important to never try and aspirate fluid from the system um, because this can transmit negative pressure to the catheter and then ultimately to the brain. Because it's important to realize that one of the reasons the system is potentially not draining is maybe the ventricles are completely collapsed due to an elevated ICP from maybe an intracranial hemorrhage, traumatic brain injury, or some other process. So in these situations, there's simply no additional CSF to drain, even if the ICP is highly elevated. Uh, so trying to drain additional fluid is not likely going to happen, and it's potentially deleterious to the patient. And uh, what should be done if the ventriculostomy catheter becomes disconnected from the collection system? Well, the first priority, as I have mentioned numerous times already, is really we want to minimize overdrainage of CSF. Because if the catheter is disconnected, you could have uncontrolled drainage of CSF um, in just you know, anywhere the catheter is. Um, so the first step is get, take a clamp and do a, pretty much I would just kink the catheter and then use the clamp to clamp it to fully shut so that no further CSF will drain out. Once that's been done, I would discuss with the surgeons the next step. Um, and typically they don't need to replace the catheter, but you wanna have that conversation um, for each specific patient. But either way, um, you're gonna replace your draining system because the draining system is now potentially contaminated. So you'll get a new draining system. And if the decision was made to maintain the same catheter, you'll connect that new draining system uh, to the previous catheter. And you know, I, I would consult with my neurosurgical colleagues about how to clean the catheter and do it in a, the best possible fashion. Uh, Dr. Buckley, can you go through the different reasons CSF may be drained during surgery? Well, the most common reasons that we see is to drain CSF um, either basically for patients that have an elevated ICP. Uh, another reason that we typically will do it is to help relax the brain to improve operating conditions. And then lastly, for patients that have some kind of process causing a non-communicating hydrocephalus. So this is the end of you know, what I want to discuss today. Hopefully this brief discussion was helpful in understanding the basics of EVD management. You know, as I mentioned, there's an excellent paper by Snack um, that you can read if you want to get more in-depth knowledge. Um, but my hope is to just kind of get you started with you know, what to do and what to uh, not do with these catheters and keep your patients safe. Thank you very much, Dr. Buckley.